Amen. All right, check this out. One day this guy's uh, walking across this bridge and he saw this other fellow that looked like he was getting ready to jump. And so being a Christian, all he thought he'd try to stall him, you know, until the authority showed up. Right, Mario? Good answer. All right. So he yells to the guy. He says, hey, hey, don't jump, don't jump. And the guy replies, he says, well, well why not? No, nobody loves me. And he says, well, God loves you. you. You believe in God, don't you? And he says, yeah, I, I believe in God. And he says, good. He says, are you a Christian or are you Jewish? And he says, well, I'm a Christian. He said, hey, hey me too. He said, uh, uh, what, what kind of Christian? And he said, uh, I'm a Baptist. And he said, hey, me too. He said, uh, independent Baptist or Southern Baptist? And all God's people said, Southern Baptist. Okay. <laughs> so he goes, hey, hey, me too. No way, man. And uh, so he says, okay, well, is that the new evangelical moderate Southern Baptist or the conservative Southern Baptist? And he said, conservative Southern Baptist. And the guy said, hey, me too. No way. He said, uh, the once saved, always saved conservative Southern Baptist or the lose your salvation Arminian conservative Southern Baptist? And he says, well, you know, the once saved, always saved conservative Southern Baptist. He goes, hey, me too, no way. And he says, uh, the King James only once saved, always saved, conservative Southern Baptist, or the modern versions once saved, always saved, conservative Southern Baptist. And the guy said, modern versions once saved, always saved, conservative Southern Baptist. And the other guy says, what? You heretic. And he shoved him over the bridge. <laughs> now, folks, the reason why that's funny is because, unfortunately, we Christians do that to each other on secondary issues all the time, right? We have a tendency to disagree on uh, oftentimes non-essentials, okay? But this morning, I hope there's one thing that we never disagree on, and that is the church ordinance we call communion. We just saw the other one called baptism, okay? But also the other one that's given for us in the scripture is communion. And I say that not just because it happens to be communion Sunday. Anybody recognize that yet? And the announcements and everything else, okay, yeah? But believe it or not, listen to this. Some Christians, I believe, unfortunately approach this time of communion with an attitude that God disagrees with. And the results are disastrous. And it's not funny at all. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God. Open your Bibles to the communion passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to read the whole context here of communion, okay, to get the full flavor of it. And then we're going to go back and we're going to tear it apart, Lord willing. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You find 2 Corinthians, what do you do? Take a left, that's right. If you find 3 Corinthians, what do you do? Yeah, new Bible, that's the wrong one with the purple cover. That's the morning Bible. Uh, don't do it. So, But uh, anyway, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read all about the Lord's Supper or communion, starting with verse 17. When you get there, say move. New. There's always a demon in here. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, it says this, in the following directives, listen to what Paul says. Now, this is the, I want you to get the whole context, not just communion and what it symbolizes, but get the whole context of what was going on and what Paul had to say about this actual church in Corinth, a group of Christians and their attitude towards communion. And listen how it starts off. He says, now in the following directions, I got what? No praise for you. Now, how many guys would say that's, they're headed for trouble? Okay, yeah, I got no praise for you, man. He says, listen to this, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there's what? divisions among you and to some extent i believe it and no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have god's approval when you come together it's not even the lord's supper you eat for as you eat each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else one remains hungry another one they're at a church service and they get what drunk can you believe that okay and he says this don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of god and humiliate those who have nothing what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. 
Notice the exclamation point. Then he goes into this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my what? Body, which is for who? You. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant or contract in my what? Blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of who? Me. For why? For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. He's coming back again. Okay. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a what? Unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks what? judgment on himself and he says in fact in case you didn't get it maybe you didn't know but he says this is why many among you are weak and sick listen and a number of you have fallen asleep or what what's that mean you actually died because of this okay he says but if we judge ourselves we would not come under judgment and when we are judged by the lord we are being disciplined so that we would not condemned with the world he says so then my brothers when you come together to eat wait for each other Okay, anybody's hungry should eat at home. That's not what we're here for, in other words. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Okay, and when I come, I'm going to give further uh, instructions, as Paul says. Now, that's the whole back end. You usually we kind of focus on the middle part there, but I wanted you to get the full flavor from the beginning and the end and grab the whole context because that's how you're supposed to interpret the scripture. Okay, but based on the whole context of communion there, how many guys would say that God takes communion a little serious? Okay, people getting sick. Okay, people being weakened. People actually dying as a. This is in the church. People actually dying as a result of their lack of reverence towards taking communion. That's kind of serious. Okay, and folks, here's what I would. It just gets my mind going. It's like, wow, just stop and think about this. Did that only happen back then? Could it be that that could actually be happening today? Yet, listen, people are not associating it with their attitude towards approaching communion, let alone their sinful, selfish, divisive behavior in the church ongoing to the point where you even keep doing that while you're taking communion. Whoa. I think so. Therefore, if we're going to avoid some harsh reality, being disciplined by God with an improper attitude towards communion, I say we better remind ourselves what it's all about. How about you? Hey, good answer. We're going to do it anyway, because I got a lot to go. Uh, but the first thing that uh, we need to understand about communion, if we don't want to get disciplined by God, is folks, communion is a time of worship. This is why I said you got this. You should be excited. Woo, man. This isn't some boring ritual. Communion is all about worship. All about worship, folks. Because listen, it's not just a time when we Christians get together and we go through some dry, boring, stale, ritualistic activity. Are you kidding me? Not at all. It's not a time where we just stand up, sit down, pass this, pass that, drink this, crunch that. That's not what it's all about. At the heart of communion, it's all about worship. Worship of God and all the wonderful things that He's done for us, the salvation that He's given to us. He's rescued us from hell. He's taken us to heaven. Listen, and He wants us to have this worshipful attitude. And we see that in this text. He calls us to enter into a worshipful attitude by asking us to remember specifically two things. And when you remember these two things, you can't help but just to get into it worshipfully. And the first thing, according to the text, he says, you need to remember, number one, that his body 
was broken for you. Okay, let's remind us of that little piece that we saw uh, in the text there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 24. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, broke the bread, and he said this, hey, it's symbolic. This is my what? This is my body, which is for you. So do this in remembrance of me. Is exactly what is going on in the text here, okay? And the first thing that Jesus calls us to, to reflect upon, to remember in an attitude of worship during communion is his body was broken for us. Why? Of all things, why did he call us to do that? Well, I got a theory and it goes like this, because when you understand what in the world the body of Jesus Christ went through on the cross, you can't help but worship him, okay? So let's remind ourselves practically what did his body go through on the cross for our salvation. And again, I think this is part of our problem even in the church today. We've either flat out forgotten or become numb to what Jesus' body went through on the cross. Okay, and we're so flippant with today. Even the world is today. Okay, for your information, folks, the cross is not just some religious Christian symbol to hang around your neck. The cross was a horrible instrument of suffering and death. And when Jesus said, and when the Bible says that his body was broken for us, Man, was it broken. The cross was the firing squad. It was the hangman's news. It was the gas chamber of the day. It was the means to execute the worst of criminals. Only, obviously, Jesus Christ was not a criminal. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. He who knew no sin, listen, voluntarily chose to die like that. And man, was he busted. Okay, unless you think it's an easy thing to do, I'm going to share with you a short video of what did Jesus' body go through on the cross for you and I? All right? It was not an easy thing to do, and he did this voluntarily. Let's take a look at the effects of that. Jesus has endured hours of misery, but the worst of the ordeal is yet to come. The nails that are used, uh, we have many of them uh, excavated here and there. They're usually quite long. Uh, they have a very large uh, head the shank is square in cross-section, they're forged, they're quite pointed because they're to be driven into very large timbers, that is, through the person and into the wood. In quick succession, the nails are pounded into his feet and hands. There are many uh, cases in which, for example, an, an injury to the hand uh, from a bullet or from a, even a, a, a knife would cause what is called causalgia and initially the pain is felt just where the injury is. If the median nerve is ruptured or injured it will also cause severe excruciating burning like pains like lightning bolts traversing the arm into the spinal cord. Now we know from experiences and during war especially World War II where did studies on a condition called causalgia, which is a condition caused by injuring the median nerve. The pain was so terrific that even morphine wouldn't help, and they had to actually operate on the spinal column in order to decrease uh, that pain or to eliminate uh, that type of pain. And it's so severe that if you blow on the skin of the hand where the pain is, the patient will scream abnormally. When a nail p 
pierces the top of the foot, goes through the top of the foot, whether it went through uh, each foot separately or both feet, it would rupture or at least injure the plantar nerves, which go down in between each of the bones. The pain would be very similar to that of the hand because causalgia is the same medical condition, uh, causing severe lightning bolt-like pains right up the legs, burning, searing type of pains. And think of our world, even non-Christians who wear their cross around their neck and have no idea what it really stands for. I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of thinking being nailed to the cross is kind of painful. Right? Now keep in mind, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, did this voluntarily. He knew this was coming. He knew he was going to go through this. Why? Out of pity, out of compassion to keep you and I from getting what we deserve, namely hell. That's what it took for us to get out of that horrible destiny. And believe it or not, folks, that was just the beginning of the horrible treatment and pain and suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. That was just the beginning of a huge ordeal. Now let's take a look at the final moments of Jesus being on the cross, also from a medical description. The guy says that it would win something like this. As Jesus slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrist, excruciating as we saw, fiery pain shoots up through his fingers, up through his arms, and explode into his brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. And so as he pushes himself up to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight now of the nail in his feet. But this causes a searing agony as the nail tears the nerves in the bones of his feet. And so now his arms get fatigued. He's got cramps sweeping through his muscles. They're knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And with these cramps come the inability to push himself upward to breathe. He can uh, draw air into the lungs, but he can't exhale. And so Jesus fights to raise himself in order just to get one small breath and in spasms he's able to push himself upward to exhale to get more oxygen but each time it's less and less and less he experiences hours of horrible pain the tissue is torn from his lacerated back trying to move up and down from the horrible uh, the timber there the roof timber just so he can breathe but then another agony sets in a deep crushing pain in the chest begins in the area around his heart as slowly it fills with serum it begins to compress his heart it's almost over the loss of fluids reach a critical level level his heart is struggling to pump blood as the tortured lungs make a frantic effort to get small gulps of air he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues and finally jesus can allow his body to die but not before saying father forgive them for they know not what they do that's what jesus went through for you and i on purpose voluntarily and you put it in its context and this is mind-blowing who in the right mind would volunteer to die for somebody like that listen here's the context though especially for people who sinned against you and hated your guts and he still did it can you believe that I mean, you talk about the love of God. That's exactly what God did. We all deserve to die and go straight into hell, but through the cross of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven and go straight into heaven. And to think it's not just free for the asking, but we absolutely do not deserve it. He went ahead and did it anyway. Here's the point. If that doesn't inspire you to worship, you got problems. Something is wrong. 
And that's why he says, if you're going to come to the table, the communion, the first thing you got to remember, if you're going to get this worshipful, right attitude, remember, his body was broken for you. Yeah. That'll make you worship. Amen? Second thing he calls us to enter in with this worshipful attitude is, of course, his uh, blood was spilled for you. His body was broken, and then, of course, his blood. So let's take a look again at that text as we already saw. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 now says this in the same way, okay? After supper, Jesus now takes the cup, and he says this. He says, this cup is the new covenant or contract in my what? In my blood. So do this whenever you uh, uh, drink it in remembrance of him, Okay. So now Jesus calls us to the second thing to remember and reflect upon with an attitude of worship during communion. In case the first one, his body being broken for you, didn't get you, he calls us to the second one. And that was his blood was spilt for you and I. Okay, so the question is, well, why? Of all things, why did he draw our attention to that? Well, it's the same thing, folks, because when you understand what it means to have the blood of Jesus Christ shed on our behalf, you can't help but worship him. So again, let's remind ourselves, what does it mean to say this Christianese phrase? Oh, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, he cleanses you. Let's explore that. What does it mean to have the blood of Jesus cleanse us from our sins, okay? And again, I think this is part of our problem. We have just become numb to this. We flat out forgot. I don't know what the problem is, but we had, we, we just like, are you kidding me? How could you forget? And how could you not be excited even this day? I don't care how long you've been saved. To know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. Because that's what he does. The Bible is very clear. God will not forgive us of just some of our sins. Anybody glad? The Bible doesn't just forgive us of the sins up until the point you got saved. Anybody glad? Okay. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ forgives us of all of our sins. Listen, in fact, so much so right now, not tomorrow, not in the future, but right now, the way the Bible says that God looks at you and I, his children, is as if we've never sinned in the first place. See, see, we see ourselves differently and we see each other differently. We see ourselves still sinning, right? But the positional truth in the scripture is God only ever, the whole time, even here on earth, he looks at his children as spotless that's why we have such intimate communion with him now not just when we get into heaven one guy he puts it this way we talked about this before he says hey man i always had this fear of going to heaven i was afraid of going to heaven what are you talking about he says yeah i says i was afraid when i get to heaven that we're going to pull down this big screen like this one right and and it was a movie screen and then and they're gonna they're gonna play this videotape of all the sins i ever committed and my mom wouldn't be there and he says, now people, I don't know if they got a tape on you recording all my sins on me. And I don't know if they got a tape on you recording all your sins. He says, but if there is such tape, according to the Bible, I got good news for you. Jesus has erased your tape. All three of you who can appreciate that. I'll say that again. Jesus has erased your tape. Right? And he says, that means the scripture says your sins are blotted out. They're buried into the deepest sea. It's remembered no more. And he says, that thrills me. To not just know that I have my sins forgiven, but they're totally forgotten by God. And that means that one day I'm going to walk before the Lord. Jesus is going to be there with all my sins forgiven, forgotten, buried into the deepest sea, remembered no more. And with a record that is washed clean with my sins that are purged, the Father will embrace me and I will say, Abba, Father, God, in whom we have offended, we can hug. Because the blood of Jesus Christ 
cleanses us from all sin, not just when we get to heaven, but here and now. And every moment of every day, he only looks at his children through those rose-colored glasses. All he sees is perfection. Isn't that awesome? Now, here's what's amazing. You put it back in this context. It's not just an amazing love, but who, who in the right mind? Think of it from man's perspective. Who in the right mind would not only forgive those who sinned against you and hated your guts, but to forgive you so completely? He treats you now as if you've never sinned in the first place. And he's the one that we sinned against. Isn't that amazing? We who were formerly separated from God because of our sin have sent his son, Jesus Christ. He went to war for us and he won. And now, because he won, he's come back to bring us into fellowship with the Father. It's kind of like a surprise homecoming spiritually, what happened naturally with this little boy. Let's take a look at this. What you're about to see now was a surprise for a little boy whose dad has been in Iraq. The scene is a small town in northwest Washington state. U.S. Navy Ensign Bill Hawes, who spent the past seven months deployed to Iraq, decided to surprise his six-year-old son John at school. John didn't know it till he laid eyes on his dad. <laughs> It took young John a long time to stop crying, but when he did, he mustered the courage to introduce his dad to his classmates, who had all written him letters while he was deployed. It's tough to take, but welcome home. We're back with more right after this. Jesus to do battle for us. And he will watch. Remember how dark it was before we became a Christian? Remember it's like we were sitting in a room all alone? Remember how empty and vain life used to be? And then came the day when you simply said, yes, Jesus, please forgive me. And he came, he just wrapped you up and said, welcome home. And so shall it always be. That's what it means to have the blood of Jesus Christ spilled in our behalf. All of our sins are forgiven and we can embrace the Father and say, oh, now. And Jesus says, that's what I want you to focus on when you take communion. Why? Because that will inspire you to worship. Amen? The second thing about communion that we need to remind ourselves, not only is it a time of worship, uh, but it's a time of unity. Okay? This is, it just gets better as you go, okay? 
if you got the right, right understanding. The word communion comes from the Greek word koinonia, and it simply means community or fellowship or joint participation. Okay, communion speaks of unity, literally, that we have in Christ because we've all become a part of the body of Christ through his body being broken and his blood being spilt on our behalf. Paul puts it this way. This is an amazing truth, what happens, okay? It gives us a new identity, okay? Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. You are all sons of God through faith in who? Christ Jesus, okay? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is therefore, because of that, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, because you're all one in who? Jesus Christ, okay? The Bible clearly says this is one of the most revolutionary truths you will never, ever, ever find in this world. They try with all their programs, with all the government things and all these classes and that, it doesn't ever work. Throw a billion dollars at it, I don't care, it isn't going to work. But Jesus Christ can and only he can. He can only do what I'm about to tell you. The Bible says that when you get saved, all gender, all racial, all ethnic barriers are forever removed. Only Jesus can make us one. And that's what he has done for you and I. So when we gather together for communion, we're not just celebrating the body and blood of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, i.e. a complete pardon of our sins. But we're also celebrating what he's made for us. He's made us into a completely unified body. Okay, think about this, guys. The world can't get this. They're trying, but they can't. It'll never work. Okay, the church, believe it or not, try to take this as a compliment. We're a bunch of misfits, <laughs> right? Think about it, right? We're, we come from all different backgrounds, all different tribes, if you will, languages, tongues, backgrounds, colors, shapes, sizes, pedigrees. Guess what? And we all get along. Okay, supposed to anyway. In fact, so much so, then God tells us specifically how to treat each other. This is phenomenal. We are to not just encourage one another, but each one of these, we're supposed to really get into it and be passionate about it. We, 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 we encourage one another. We serve one another. We forgive one another. We admonish one another. We're like-minded with one another. We greet one another. We bear with one another. And get this, we actually love one another. What a concept. That's the church of Jesus Christ, okay? So that's what we're celebrating as well with this word communion. It's a time where we celebrate our joint participation in Jesus Christ, what he's made for us, a unified body of believers that we can all become one. We all become a part of his forever family, of a family, maybe you had a, no family or a rotten family, but as a church, as a Christian, when you become saved, you become part of a fantastic family. That's what he's won for us on the cross, okay? Now, listen, I said all that. That's obviously great news is you're clapping, right? But that's also, I believe, why there's such a strong reaction to God in discipline when you violate this truth in the church. Okay, and again, that's what we see was happening here in Corinth, okay? Some people were getting sick. Some even died, okay, because of an ungodly, irreverent attitude when it came to sin and treating each other in the church and carrying that into the act of communion, which is completely opposite of what its meaning is. And let's take a look at that text. This is what Paul says, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 18, 20 through 22. In the following directives, Paul says, I got no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there's divisions among you. Now, remember the word communion means what? Union, we're one. And he says, what? Divisions? And then you have the audacity to do this during the actual act of communion? He says, 
to some extent, I believe it. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another one gets drunk. Come on, guys, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? That's not what this is all about. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. He was literally blown out of his mind. Can you believe that? Paul rebukes the Corinth church in this context when it comes to communion because they were being apparently divisive towards each other in the church. And again, that's exactly opposite of what the word communion union means. Do you see the hypocrisy? Do you see that? They were despising the church of God. They were being selfish. They were being debased towards the things of God. And they carried that casual attitude of sin right on into the act of communion. And so what do you say? Well, um, you got some troubles. And that's what he says this. This is why he says that at the end of the passage here. I really think this is explaining it, folks, because we think, oh, that's a little harsh. Mm. You get the context, makes sense. 1 Corinthians 11, now 27 to 30. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. What was the unworthy manner? All that we just described. Can you believe this? You guys are being selfish towards each other. You're being divisive towards each other. You have the audacity to carry that attitude, being mean and nasty. You're supposed to serve one another, love one another. And now you're going to do this during communion. Excuse me, in an unworthy manner, you're going to be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So you ought to examine yourself. Make sure your heart's right before he eats of the bread or drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks what? Judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and believe it or not, yeah. A number of you have actually died. God took you out. Isn't that an amazing passage when you start ripping into it? Kind of a scary one too, isn't it? God takes this serious, folks. I mean, think about this. What's going on here? God actually disciplined these Christians to the point where some got sick, some even died because of their selfish, sinful, divisive behavior in the church and communion. And I came across an analogy that I think, because we're thinking, oh, that's kind of harsh. You don't usually hear that too much. But if you put it another way, I think it makes total sense. One guy, he puts it this way. He says, I've been watching from time to time uh, the peace protests that are going on in the media and that's coming back. It's called flag burning, flag trampling, flag stapling, other desecrations, disintegration of American flags. He says, now when people do that, when they trample the flag of the United States of America, they are insulting everything that that flag stands for and that's why they're doing it. They become guilty of not just dishonoring the flag, but they become guilty of dishonoring the nation that it represents. Okay, they're treating with disdain those who have fought in the past for our freedoms and those who continue to fight and work for our freedoms, those who give their lives in service to this great nation. And so it is with the Lord's table. When we trample the symbols of Jesus Christ with the feet of indifference or the feet of pride or the feet of shallowness or the feet of selfishness or unrepentance or division. It is to bring dishonor and shame upon the Christ on whom those symbols represent. He says, you just need to think about that. He said, I dare say there's probably not a handful of people here who would even think ever of burning an American flag and bring dishonor on this great nation. But who here perhaps regularly dishonors the Lord by trampling the symbols that represent him in communion? And he simply says this, don't do that. 
read the scripture. Let a man, verse 28, examine himself. He says, look inside. Take a real look at your heart and come in a worthy man. He says, come really to worship God and to be really thankful for the cross and the Christ who gave his life there. Do it that way. Examine yourself. And so then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This still blows me away. But think about this and then move on and we'll close. How many times have we gotten sick How many times did another fellow Christian just up and die unexpectedly? From our point of view, anyway. And it might have been from their sinful attitude and their sinful behavior in the church. And God dealt with them. Now what's sad is, if in fact that's the case, how sad it is that they still didn't get it as the loving hand of our loving Father disciplining those whom He loves. Because if you don't get it right the first time, have you learned that God's faithful just like an earthly father? You get out of line again, what's He going to do? He's still going to spank you again until you learn the lesson. That's what was going on in this passage. So I echo the words of that commentator, don't do that! Okay? Okay? Now, if that one didn't get you, to enter into this attitude of just worship and really getting into this and appreciating communion. The final one, hopefully will, and that is communion is not just a time of worship. It's not just a, a time of unity. It's a time of urgency. And this is cool, man. This works exactly perfect with our other study that God has us on with Bible prophecy. So let's take a look at that passage as Paul talks about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. So when we do this, what's it all about? Here's what he says. From whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What's the phrase there? Until he comes. Turn to somebody and say, Jesus is coming back. Okay, And this is tucked away in the communion passage. And it tells us, folks, listen, the Bible says that communion is not just a time when we gather and celebrate the body and blood of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, a full pardon of our sins. And it's not only a time when we celebrate what his body and blood has made for us, a unified family of believers, the family of God. It's awesome. Woohoo! Okay? But according to the Bible, listen, either we are going to, listen, this, this is amazing. It's a time that we also remember the great news. All your sins are forgiven. He's placed you into an amazing family who loves one another. Enjoy it until he comes. He's reminding us in communion, I'm coming back to get you. See, see that's good news if you love him, right? I, I don't know. It was a really tough wedding, you know, just yesterday. And all week long, I just, I had to... I had to chase Robert down. I had to drag him with a, you know, a rope and a stick. And just even the day, I had to go hunt him down. He was trying to hide away from Carly. It was just horrible. You know, the closer it got, the, I don't, don't even talk about it. I don't want to see your... Are you kidding me, man? They're like two puppy dogs. They couldn't wait to get married, right? <laughs> with all due respect, if you guys watch this video. Uh, but <laughs> That's a healthy, normal, loving relationship. And if we love Jesus, we're excited for the news that he's coming back. And that's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves when we take communion, he's coming back to get us, okay? Now listen, this should spur on some urgency. 
before he arrives. Because he's coming back. And there's two ways that we're going to go see him as a born-again Christian today. Number one, you could die and you could stand before God. That's option number one. Number two, in the generation we live in, the rapture could happen. Rapture practice, right? It could happen today before we even finish communion. Okay? And so then we're going to see him face to face. Now, here's the point. This is why it's urgent. Either way, we're going to meet him one day. And what's your last thing on earth going to be? But let's remind ourselves real quick in closing. Could the rapture really happen? Yes, it can. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 through 18. According to the Lord's own word, whose word? God's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who fall asleep. Christians who's already died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They get their resurrection bodies first. Then after that, we who what? Us today. We're still, anybody still alive? Raise your hand. The rest of you will keep praying for you. Or thank Bill Wimberly for making the attendance go up by getting all those mannequins at JCPenney's. But anyway, <laughs> I never thought of that technique, but I guess it works in the numbers. And we who are still alive, all right, and are left are going to be caught up. That's harpazo in the Greek, uh, rapture from the Latin where we get the English word rapture. That's where you get it from. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we're going to be with the Lord forever. And that's why he says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. So folks, it's going to happen. Either you're going to die and you're going to stand before God. Could happen today. Or the rapture is going to happen. And so let me encourage you with something, okay? Even in the act of communion, if you were to die right now, if you were to experience the rapture, what is the last act? What is your track record as a Christian going to be? Before you meet him face to face. Because it's kind of like the phrase, leave a legacy, leave a godly legacy. When you, did you know even while you're talking about that, you're leaving a legacy? Not five years, no, you already are. What is your legacy? And it's not just, yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's an intriguing deep thought for today, Pastor Billy. I didn't get that on the back of Cheerios this morning or the granola bar. Uh, what am I going to be doing when I see, it's going to happen. You realize that? It's not if, it's going to happen. What is your last act going to be? Now, in the context of communion, because remember, what brought this up? In communion, until he comes, he's coming back. And so the question is, is it going to be your last act before he comes back and gets you? Is it going to be causing division in the church? As the Corinthians were? Is it going to be sinning in the church? Is it going to be having a casual attitude towards the blood and body of Jesus Christ? We are taking communion. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so the question is, are you ready? Wouldn't it be wild if God chose right in the middle of taking communion? Bang! Rapture happened. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, hopefully it doesn't turn out like for these folks. Let's take a look at that. Jesus Christ is coming back for his church. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 24 verse 42, watch therefore for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. I want you to know church that Jesus Christ could come this month or he might come next week or he could even come...
You could watch that 15 times and it makes you jump every time. Folks, this is not some Christian fantasy. What you just saw depicted really is going to happen one day. Unfortunately, there will be people falling in front of the pew, weeping. Why didn't I cry out to Jesus? Why did I wait? Why did I let that person sitting next to me in the pew in my own pride keep me from coming and weeping? But the other issue is to flip it around. Christian, one day that's going to happen, and we're going to see Jesus. How's your track record? How are you treating your fellow brother and sister in Christ? Are we loving each other? Are we bearing with one another? You know, because I don't know if you noticed, you've been around the church long enough. Some folks are kind of weird and they get on your nerves. Besides the pastor. But you love each other anyway. And you put up with one another. Right? That's the body of Christ. Is that your track record? Wouldn't it be great the last thing that you do before you get to see Jesus? You're leading somebody to Christ. Are you sharing the gospel? What are you doing? Because that's your reality too. If you're not saved, you need to get saved right now. But if you are, let's make sure our hearts are right and we leave this earth correctly. Amen? Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying, okay? How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand, okay? Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing 
Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave, and the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us.
But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.